Speech Pathology Australia acknowledged the traditional custodians of the lands, seas and waters throughout Australia and pay respect to Elders past, present and future. We recognise that the health and social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are grounded in continued connection to culture, country, language and community and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week we showcase a conversation with inspiring and influential people who are advancing practice in one of the many and varied areas of speech pathology. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi, and welcome to this week's Speak Up Conversation. I'm Lauren Fletcher. I'm a senior speech pathologist in neurorehabilitation at the Epworth Hospital in Melbourne. I've long had a particular interest in the field of aphasia rehabilitation and have the pleasure of sitting on the Committee for Aphasia Victoria, as well as the Speech Pathologists in Adult Rehabilitation Interest Group. Today, I'm very excited to speak to be speaking with Jade Dignam for this week's Speak Up Conversation, where we'll be chatting about Jade's research into intensive intervention programs for aphasia. Jade is a speech pathologist and postdoctoral research fellow at the Queensland Aphasia Research Centre, and has recently led a study investigating the clinical effectiveness of a comprehensive high-dose aphasia treatment program, as well as barriers and facilitators to implementation. So as a clinician who's been trying to convince various health services that intensive comprehensive aphasia treatment programs are the way forward for many years now, this is a topic that's very close to my heart and I'm delighted to be speaking with Jade today. So Jade, welcome. Thank you very much, Lauren. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. First of all, before we dive into your research, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about where you started in speech pathology and really what led you down this path um, to research, in particular in the area of aphasia therapy. Certainly. Um, So I started as a clinical speech pathologist uh, at Wollongong, um, south of Sydney, and worked in rehabilitation, um, both inpatient and outpatient rehab space down there. And I also worked as a clinical speech pathologist across a a number of hospitals in Sydney. And as part of that, my role was largely involved in delivering aphasia rehabilitation services. Um, And when I was at Prince of Wales, my role was specifically to supplement the intensity of intervention provided uh, to people with post-stroke aphasia. So I guess that's where I initially developed an interest in intensive aphasia therapy. Um, And that was at a time when there was new evidence emerging around the benefits of intensive therapy. Um, And I guess it uh, really piqued my interest in terms of identifying what evidence was out there to support our intervention. I was also very interested um, in looking at what the breadth of intervention was to guide different treatment approaches. Uh, Rather than just looking at one particular impairment approach, I was looking at interested in looking at um, how best to comprehensively manage patients. Um, and that kind of led me down the research path. Excellent. And the, the research that you've been working on most recently is around um, one of these sorts yes. of programs, so an intensive, yep. comprehensive aphasia program. Yep. Um, you've termed it the CHAP program. 
Yes. What is the chat program? Can you tell us about what it is and how it differs to, I guess, more traditional or typical models of aphasia therapy that you might have been doing, say, when you started out as a clinical speech pathologist? So the chat program stands for Comprehensive High Dose Aphasia Treatment. And it involves 50 hours of comprehensive aphasia therapy. And by comprehensive, what we mean is that it includes both one-on-one and group intervention. It also includes um, impairment, functional and computer-based training. So its um, therapy is directed across the World Health Organization's ICF model and it's delivered in an intensive format. So participants receive 50 hours of intervention delivered over eight weeks. And they're involved in the CHAT program in a cohort model. So a group of participants will start and complete the program together. Um, This research, so the CHAT program um, has been in development for about 10 years now. Um, It was originally uh, developed as a program called LIFT, which was a research program. Um, Again, looking at this model of intensive comprehensive therapy. And as part of this research over the last 10 years, we've modified different elements of it. So we've looked at things like the dose of the intervention, the duration, the type of treatments included within. Um, We've taken on board feedback from clinicians, people with aphasia and service managers. And we've also reviewed latest evidence and incorporated that into the program as we've developed it. So there's been sort of a 10-year process of development of this intervention. And as part of that, we've looked at the efficacy of the treatment. So we've looked to see, um, is this treatment, uh, does it benefit people with aphasia? Where are the benefits? And then from that, we've developed the CHAT program. So the CHAT program, yeah, it's taken about 10 years to come together. um, And it's just at the stage now where we're able to implement it into a clinical setting. Yeah, fantastic. I guess that probably leads us then to talking a little bit more about your recent study. So your recent Mm -hmm. study, you were looking at the clinical effectiveness of the CHAT program um, and also about the barriers to implementing it and the facilitators. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, the the recent study? So what were the main aims and what were the main findings? What were the outcomes? So this study now um, is a joint collaboration between the Queensland Aphasia Research Centre and the Speech Pathology Department at STARS, which is a surgical treatment and rehabilitation service. So we're really fortunate to be partnered in this clinical research partnership. Um, And what we're looking at with this study is when CHAT is delivered as part of a clinical service, Um, what are the clinical outcomes? So is it effective? And the reason we're asking this question and why this is important is often in a research study, uh, we have quite clear criteria about who can be included and who can't. Um, Whereas this study now is looking at, does this treatment work for your general stroke rehab population? Uh, So what we're seeing is that our participants are often slightly older They've got potentially more complex comorbidities or medical histories. Often they've had multiple strokes. Um, And often these patients wouldn't be included in a research project, but this is a pragmatic implementation and effectiveness study. So we're looking to see, does it work in this setting? Are there any exclusion criteria? Any people who are So the inclusion criteria are confirmed stroke um, with a diagnosis of aphasia based on a speech pathology assessment um, and greater than one month time post onset. The only other um, 
inclusion criteria is uh, suitable for rehab based on the decision of the medical rehabilitation team. Um, and this would be based on things like if they're medically unstable or not appropriate for rehab. Um, but largely, we've found it's very pragmatic approach in terms of who's able to participate. Um, and so we are very fortunate that as part of this partnership, uh, Queensland Health has provided two full-time speech pathologists to deliver the intervention. Um, so it's actually delivered as part of their clinical service. Um, so it's incorporated into their normal caseload and they provide the service. Um, so it's a hybrid study. We're looking at both the clinical effectiveness, so does the intervention work, but we're also looking at the implementation of how does this actually work in a, in a hospital rehabilitation setting. Um, and so that side of the study is led by Dr. Kirstine Shrubsole, and she's looking at things like what are the barriers and facilitators. She's also conducting a process evaluation of the study to see um, what factors influence the success and outcomes of the trial in terms of implementing the intervention? Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Um, what did you find in terms of the effectiveness? So we've recruited for the first 12 months of running in the hospital. Um, we recruited 23 participants with aphasia. Um, and what we've found so far is that participants had, first of all, completed the intervention, which is um, important in itself because mm. there's still some preconceived ideas that people with post-stroke aphasia can't complete high dose or intensive therapy. Um, and we found that compliance with the intervention was very high. Um, but importantly, what we found was um, significant improvements across a number of different measures. So we found significant improvements on language impairment measures, looking at um, the comprehensive aphasia test. Uh, so we found imp improvements on those measures. We also found significant improvements in functional communication um, on the SETI, as well as communication-related quality of life. Um, on the stroke and aphasia quality of life scale and as well as an improvement in communication confidence using the communication confidence rating scale. So what we've seen, it's been very exciting, is yeah. across these domains and areas, um, the impact of this comprehensive therapy resulting improvements not just in the traditional sort of language impairment modes but across broader quality of life and communication domains as well. Yeah, fantastic. And what was some of the feedback from, or do you, have you received any feedback yeah. from either participants or speech pathologists? Yeah, we. I mean, the feedback we've received has been incredibly positive um, and it's really rewarding both as a researcher and as a clinician to see this. Um, there's been a lot of feedback around access that clients or participants wish that their family members had had access to intensive intervention earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, we currently don't have a minimum time post-onset. So many of our participants are quite a far way down the track when they come in. Um, and so there is, there's been feedback about, yeah, that general need for equitable access for participants to access research um, intervention like this. Mm. Um, overwhelmingly, most people with aphasia don't want the program to end. <laughs> so we kind of, we question how much is enough and is 50 hours yeah. too much? Um, and the feedback we generally receive from participants with aphasia is that they're quite happy to do more. Is that um, because they're seeing gains or they're just enjoying 
participating or a bit of both? I think a combination of both things. Um, One of the skills that we've really um, worked with the clinicians and built and developed is the process around goal setting. Mm. And so the clinicians are really developing um, a skill set and a bank of resources to support realistic and feasible goal setting in an eight-week period. Um, And so it is nice that patients can then see what they've achieved over that time Um, and I think that's really motivating for them as well. Yeah that sounds like such an important um, thing to be upskilling in even outside of a sort of intensive or comprehensive program knowing that most funding models would have sort of set periods of rehabilitation knowing how to set achievable and motivating goals in that time. I think That's it. And I mean, it really is clinically challenging. It comes up regularly that it's challenging to include people with aphasia in in goal setting. Um, But because it is a time-limited program, we also want to maximise what they take away from it and ensure that they're not, um, that they are setting realistic goals and that they're achievable in that timeframe. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. And is the um, feedback from the clinicians delivering the program similarly positive? It is, it is. So the clinicians, um, again, I think it's been an incredible learning opportunity for the clinicians. They often give a lot of feedback around um, being able to take on board and learn new treatment techniques, um, which is amazing. And it's an, it's amazing to see uh, the translation of research into practice um, because they've got that dedicated time to look at um you know, to complete a thorough assessment, but also dedicated clinical planning time. So one of the unique elements of this program is that um, shortly after goal setting and comprehensive assessment, the clinical speech pathologist, the research speech pathologist, the implementation scientist and a technology expert all come together um, for a clinical case meeting and discuss each of the patients and then collaboratively develop a treatment plan for those patients. Um, and it's How an amazing long does that day. really take that process. Uh, we normally dedicate a day for yep. it's normally about an hour or a bit more per person. Yep. Um, they the clinicians are very skilled at it now, so they're starting to, you know, can complete it more quickly. In the yep. early days it took us a little bit longer. Um, and it's, it's an amazing clinical day where they can really in depth go through the participants' assessments, um, identify their hypothesised level of breakdown and really map what evidence would best match their goals to develop a treatment plan for them. Um, that sounds like an absolute dream day as a clinician who <laughs> has enough time to plan therapy. It I can is. imagine all, everyone listening to this is just thinking, gosh, imagine what I could do with, with that is. day. That's such a great part of the program. It is. And it's quite unique, I think, being situated within a research context. Um, quite often the clinicians will come up with a question and this program of research is led by Professor David Copland, but he usually has a contact anywhere around the world that he will be able to email and, you know, you get the latest research evidence really at your fingertips, which they're able to then implement, which is quite an amazing um, thing to see. Yeah, fantastic. And so I suppose the, you know, the feedback from everyone has been positive. These sorts of therapy programs aren't new, as you mentioned, from the LIFT program through to now. This has been in development for 10 years. And I guess the benefits of intensive high-dose aphasia therapy has been discussed for a number of years now. Why do you think, why are we yet to see translation of that into clinical practice? I think it is a real shift in the service delivery model. So I think you need... um 
buy-in across a number of parties. I don't think it's something that can just be led by one clinician. I think you need, um, really, I think you need the multidisciplinary team on board um, because it does, even in our case, you know, there's collaboration with OT and physio to make sure that it works Mm -hmm. from a feasibility perspective. You also need obviously management um, at a higher level on board in terms of restructuring the service. Um, And we're still understanding how best to put this into practice. Um, So one of the nice things that we've been able to do with this study is have Kirstine Shrubsold develop an implementation strategy alongside it. Um, And as I said, she's conducting a process analysis to look at what are the factors that are influencing the success of the trial um, and the success of the implementation. So she's looking at barriers and facilitators and developing um, an an implementation plan that is based on best practice. Um, So this study um, is forming part of a broader study. So in terms of where this is going, We have been awarded an NHMRC Partnerships Grant um, to implement this program at 20 different sites around Australia. And that, again, is a combined implementation effectiveness study. Um, And so we're starting with our first site at STARS as essentially a pilot site, but using the information that we're gathering now to inform the implementation strategy for that study to look at um, how it can be done. Fantastic. And that's so the the 20 sites where you'll be trialling this, that's from all across Australia? So it's from Queensland, New South Wales and South Australia. I think we've got sites that are signed up for that study. And that's, um, I think it's a period of usual care and Mm -hmm. then implementation after that. So that's underway at the moment. Fantastic. Do you think... um, with this research as well as what's happened in the past, will we get to a point in the future where we see these sorts of treatment programs being offered as usual care, as part of usual clinical practice? I would hope so. I really would. I think we've got fairly clear evidence now that one hour of speech pathology a week for six months or 12 months isn't sufficient to make meaningful changes mm-hmm. um, and to bring about a change in communication. So I I think we really do need to reconsider the model in which we're delivering our therapy um, and use what evidence we have. We've got fairly strong evidence now that high dose or high intensive therapy results in better outcomes. So I think we've got the evidence there. It's just the implementation and practical strategies around how to change that practice. Yeah, it is, it's really difficult, isn't it? Because it's not just not just the fact that that's not how things have been done in the past, but there's that's so many restrictions in terms of funding and it is. what people have access it to. Is. And it's um, it's not a cheap intervention, I guess, mm. in that sense. It is resource heavy. Um, there is another ICAP or intensive comprehensive aphasia model like this being implemented in Queen Square in London. Mm-hmm. Um, and that research is being led by uh, Professor Alex Leff. Um, and he his take on this is that we know this is a resource-heavy intervention, but we also know that people with aphasia experience the poorest quality of life of any other disease. Mm. Um, and while it is expensive, it's not um, it's not expensive compared to a surgery or another sort of medical intervention. And we know these people experience very, very poor outcomes more globally. Um, so we really do need to be directing uh, resources and intervention to support their recovery. 
Yeah, absolutely. And has there been any sort of cost analysis in terms of like the one hour of week, one hour a week of speech pathology for months and months and years versus 50 hours in one hit? Not that I've seen, not that I've seen in terms of a comparative cost analysis. Um, Within our study that we've um, still undertaking here at STARS, we haven't included a cost analysis as yet, um, but it will be part of the broader um, partnerships research project that we do, um, which will look at the cost of the intervention and delivering that as well. Yeah, because yeah, I often wonder if it does end up being more cost effective of these because there's people with chronic aphasia who sort of just want to keep coming to therapy forever. That's it. And they're not probably not going to make a lot of gains with that, as we know, one hour a week. So they do keep coming forever. Yeah, Um, and that's it. And it is is a big shift even clinically to change our mindset of, you know, it's hard to discharge a patient, particularly Mm -hmm. when we know that aphasia is a chronic disorder. Um, But really, yeah, I guess collecting and prioritising our resources, um, to ensure that what we're delivering is a, is effective and efficacious. Mm, yeah, fantastic. And I suppose, I don't know if you've experienced this, I was thinking um, about this when I was looking at some of your, your research. I've had more clients and more patients say things to me about can we do intensive programs. They've looked things up online and they've seen um, articles of people in the US or the UK who've gone to intensive programs and made great gains. And they sort of like, can we do that? Why can't I do that? Why why isn't it available here? So I don't know if there is a kind of consumer-driven preference for this type of therapy. That's it. And I think, I I mean, consumers are well-informed. They know the the different treatments treatment options out there and I think that's nice that that can drive it Um, and yes I would agree we've seen a number of um, participants even in our study who've considered going overseas to access Mm. these intensive models um, because it wasn't available in Australia before now Um, and we are getting inquiries from um, all around Australia and internationally as well we've had inquiries from New Zealand of looking at people trying to access this intervention. Um, One of the challenges from a research perspective is um, disentangling are these, is it only self-motivated, you know, highly motivated participants who are seeking it therefore. Um, But having said that, I still think people should be offered the choice to have access to that if they want it. Absolutely. And if they are highly motivated and wanting to participate in intensive therapy, then they, maybe they should get, get better games. That's, you know, that's it, exactly. It. And as I said, I mean, even we look at our patient cohort in this study at STARS, it really is. It's a typical rehab cohort. It, I would say we've, um, our participants are from within a, you know, fairly refined, refined geographic area um, and they are that little bit older. They do have multiple comorbidities. So it's not just sort of the top of the top, rehab candidates that are accessing this it is available to all rehab um, patients yeah fantastic and so you mentioned people have been contacting and wanting to know how they can get involved yes can they can people get involved in this program so so there's a couple of different ways people can get involved as I said this is actually offered as part of the clinical service at STARS um, and as part of that it does require a medical referral um, to the service Mm -hmm. Um, so People can contact either QUARC, um, the Queensland Aphasia Research Centre, um, and the email for that is 
Quark, Q-A-R-C, at uq.edu.au, um, and we can provide some information about um, the next steps in terms of a referral. I, I will also add um, a second element of this project uh, that we are currently investigating and in the early stages of looking at is the delivery of this model via telehealth. Um, so we do have a separate study currently underway which is evaluating the clinical usability, acceptability and feasibility of delivering this comprehensive model via telerehabilitation. Um, and it's quite amazing to see the clinicians delivering um, very detailed comprehensive aphasia therapy online um, and that they've really engaged in the technology and it's far more than just sort of talking heads um, but they've really broken down and analysed what features of the technology they have available um, to deliver the intervention. So for example they are still doing um, evidence-based reading comprehension or writing or um, auditory comprehension interventions um, and they've really utilised the technology well to be able to deliver that. So um, while we are physically located in Brisbane, um, we are also conducting a tele version of this study um, and that is we've had people from all around Australia and Tasmania even um, participate in that too. Yeah, fantastic. And that really has to, I guess, be the next step in terms of accessibility for people not just located in major metropolitan areas or close to major health services. That's it. And we've seen um we've seen a lot of um, anecdotally a lot of benefits in terms of providing intervention directly into the person's home. Um, right. So having things like their family members right there or, mm. you know, their environment around them that they can use to support their communication and share their stories and things like that mm. as well. I wonder if uh, it, do you feel like would there potentially be maybe better maintenance effects if the therapy is delivered in their home versus in the clinical setting? Or is that a future direction it's, for study? Do you know what? It is. It is a future direction and we are um, starting to look at that as well. <laughs> so one of the things, um, one of the other research questions we've got around is around long-term maintenance of intervention gains um, and what's the best way that people with aphasia can maintain their therapy gains long-term. Um, so Dr. Jessica Campbell is leading a study called Chat Maintain, um, which is where she's delivering a low dose of intervention um, via technology um, over a six-month period looking to see can that help support long-term gains from the therapy. Um, and one of the things that she's looking at as well is, yes, can... Um, can participants engage with sort of self-maintenance and self-management using um, software at home? Um, and again, one of the, I don't know whether we'll have the data to be able to answer this question, but one of the things that's interesting is looking to see if someone's received therapy in person versus via tele, um, mm -hmm. are they better equipped to self-manage one? Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. There's so many um, potential directions where this research <laughs> go it would probably be never ending if you let it um what what is next for you in your um professionally in the next part of this research? So in the next part, so we've been very fortunate that we've received continued support from Queensland Health to continue this program um, through the next financial year. Um, so we will be continuing to deliver the CHAT program at STARS um, into 2023. Um, and as part of that, we'll continue collecting data um, and evaluating this intervention. 
And then, as I mentioned more broadly, we are um, looking to start the NHMRC-funded chat partnership research project. Um, so, and that will be running, um, I think it was 2020 to 2025. Great. Um, so that's kind of the next steps in the project as well. Yeah. And when can we expect to see some publications? When can we find out more Hopefully. about the results? So, um, as I said, we've received confirmed funding. So we're hoping to continue collecting data up until partway through next year. Um, at which point hopefully we, we're hoping for a sample size of around 75 participants um, to have completed the CHAT program. Yeah. Um, and once we've finished collecting that data, we'll be uh, looking to submit it and publish it. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to reading all about it and hopefully um, using some of this data and the important research that you're doing to continue to, to push the agenda to make this accessible in more places. Because um, as you mentioned, you know, the feedback from participants, from clinicians, from family members has been really positive. The results seem to speak for themselves. And the thing that's left to change is uh, perspectives, funding models, and just traditional ways of doing things. That's correct. Those small things. <laughs> yeah, just those few small things. Hopefully we can, we can address that. Um, is there anything else you want to tell the listeners about your research? We've talked about... Um, the benefit of goal-directed intervention and using that to really drive um, the clinician's clinical planning and development of a therapy plan. Um, I guess one of the other challenges that the clinicians have identified is really um, as part of that goal-setting process, really making sure that the treatment's personalised mm -hmm. to the individual with aphasia. Um, and as part of that, things like, so they're delivering evidence-based practice um, they're employing, you know, evidence-based techniques such as semantic feature analysis or particular word retrieval techniques. Um, but those steps around really identifying what's important vocabulary for the person with aphasia. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we know is more generally in aphasia therapy, um, often we don't see broad generalisation outside of treated items. Um, and so one of the challenges is making sure that when they're delivering therapy, that it is um, meaningful for the person with aphasia so that they are benefiting from those gains um, rather than just, I guess, generically treating word retrieval or um, a particular target. Mm. How do you... Um how does the planning process support that individualisation? Is there so, collection of participant data, that sort of yeah, thing? Yeah, so they'll collect um, information about the person with aphasia and their family member prior to coming into the study. Uh, so they collect information about their social networks, their activities, their environment, what sort like their interests, what they like to do, what they don't like to do. Um, and then once we've sort of identified with the person with aphasia their goals for intervention, um, they can determine, so for example, if the treatment is to focus on word retrieval, they'll then in collaboration with the person with aphasia um, identify specific vocabulary linked to a particular goal. Um, but again, that's been a process in terms of developing the skills and the resources mm -hmm. to nut it down to that level. Mm -hmm. um, I guess with 50 hours of goal-directed therapy um, and because it is delivered it over just over eight weeks, um, it does require that element of pre-planning, um, yeah. which I think yeah, is a shift. you can't grab something and that's photocopy it. it and off you yeah, go. that's yeah. it. I think there's a shift. So they, the clinicians really do pre-plan what those eight weeks are going to look like and obviously they can step that up or down 
depending on how the patient progresses through the intervention. Um, but there is that planning phase, which is integral and essential for the program. Mm. I think even if um, you've inspired me, even if we're not able to necessarily implement that high dose sort of therapy to really take some elements from that in terms of the goal-directed therapy, in terms of personalisation and meaningful therapy. Um, and I think so, that's something that probably all clinicians can draw from. And the, I guess they're not, not feeling guilty about setting aside plan, time to plan and think and make sure that the therapy you are providing is meaningful, goal-directed, working towards something specific. That's exactly um, right. So, yeah, I think, and that, again, is one of the feedback from the clinicians that they've really enjoyed is having this opportunity to really think about the care they're providing and um, know that it's grounded in best practice and the latest evidence um, and to plan that in advance for the participants. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, it sounds like there's really all wins, very few, very few <laughs> if any, in this sort of um, delivery of therapy. Um, and hopefully through the research that you're doing and the future directions of research that we can start to see this popping up as part of usual clinical practice um, in health services across Australia and across the world. The other thing I'll just, I'm just thinking, Lauren, I'll add to this is yeah. um, in terms of our inclusion criteria, we're currently recruiting patients who are greater than one month post-stroke. Um, and I guess one of the important things there is um, we've got good evidence now that people will continue to make gains in their communication even into the chronic phase. Mm -hmm. um, so while we're not um, deliver, we don't aim to deliver this program in the early phases of stroke or in the acute phase, but we've had patients who are um, up to 10 years post-stroke participate and still seen some wonderful improvements. So there's, there's not a time limit or an end point at which participants weren't able to participate and benefit. Yeah, that's great. And that really, I guess, gives some hope and some purpose for people in that really chronic phase where they might have a sort of goal that pops up that they have identified many, many years after their stroke as a, this is a way that they can work on that and achieve something specific. I think, um, I think that's it. And the fact that... Um, you know, often this population in the chronic phase don't receive any treatment at all. Um, so that shift in terms of service model of where we're providing the intervention and can we provide it um, when people really need it, at, you know, whether that's with a significant shift in their life or their goals might change or, as you said, something suddenly comes up, um, but to be able to provide goal-directed therapy at a time when it's suitable and they need it. Yeah, yeah, and that that is going to represent a big shift in the way that current rehabilitation is provided whereas usually it's your inpatient stay initial outpatient rehab and then off you go for yep. Yep. the longer term um, the other the other thing just briefly we have looked at as well so this program it's for people who are greater than one month post um and we have included a mix of both inpatients and outpatients okay. so while predominantly participants have been um, in the more chronic phase and have been living at home in the community. Um, we have included a couple of um, inpatients um, okay. in the study so far um, and we are still evaluating how that works. And again, this comes back to the implementation and the process evaluation of it um, because we've found both pros and challenges to yeah. that. So one of the challenges being that because a person hasn't returned home yet 
often um, they've found goal setting really challenging yeah, um, yeah. because they don't know how that's going to fit back into their normal life yeah. and day-to-day life. Um, but from a service provision, it's a little bit easier because there's mm-hmm. flexibility in terms of when they can be seen and fitting into a timetable and things like that. Yeah. Um, so it's another consideration we're looking at as well. Yeah, fantastic. And I imagine, yeah, a lot of people in that inpatient rehabilitation stay would probably be quite motivated to do that level of intensity and that That's sort of therapy. That's exactly right. So, um, again, there's challenges in terms of balancing it with OT and physio and other um, multidisciplinary interventions, um, but we're looking at, yeah, both combination of inpatients and outpatients. Um, well, it's been an incredibly inspiring chat. You know, it's always so interesting to hear about the new directions in aphasia research, and I think this is an area that, as we mentioned, has been spoken about for so long and it really does have um, some really, really incredibly important benefits for people with aphasia and their experiences in that longer term into the chronic phase um, of their recovery. So thank you so much for talking with us today, Jade, and sharing your knowledge and your wisdom and your enthusiasm for the research. Um, We'll keep our eyes peeled for results to be published and encourage everyone to jump on and contact Jade um, or contact the Quark through the email Jade mentioned earlier if you have more questions or if you're interested in being involved somehow. Excellent. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tune in again next Wednesday for another Speak Up conversation. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast where all good podcasts are found and make sure you share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for tuning in and bye for now.